Ready for an amazing deal? BreezeLine's fiber-powered internet starting at $19.99 per month offers the reliability you deserve and security you can trust. Whether you're streaming, gaming, or working from home, we've got all your needs covered with speeds up to 1 gig and our two-year price lock guarantee. This deal gets even better with two free months of internet, free equipment, and free Wi-Fi your way to protect against cyber threats. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires July 8th, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, the uh, the midterms are sneaking up on us, man. Feeling a little nervous here. It's not not great, Tommy. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. This isn't the usual opening banter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Midterm madness is upon us. We're like ships passing the night, though. You're in Chicago. I was in D.C. Midterms are happening. I don't know. I'm in Chicago. I saw our former boss and recent Pod Save America guest Barack Obama last nice. night, and. Tomorrow, I'm going to be at the University of Chicago Institute of Politics with Rana Ayub, friend of the That pod. is awesome. So First of all, Rana is incredible. But also, yeah. the University of Chicago, the IOP students are some of the smartest human beings I've ever been around. Like, I didn't <laughs> yeah, give them yeah. enough homework, and they were disappointed in me when I taught there for a little bit. Great, great, I, great. I group. forgot that you taught here. Uh, it was like a week, but... Yeah. Well, let's, you know, give yourself credit. But if you Thank are you. an IOP student or a Chicago student, I think, uh, come on out tomorrow, see us. They're just the best. They're the best. Uh, Ben, speaking of the midterms, the last final and and potentially greatest episode of The Wilderness is out. John went all around the country. He talked to voters about their views on politics and did all these focus groups, talked to experts so that you wouldn't be surprised when those views are reflected in the results. Check it out. It's on the Pots of America feed. You can also find the aforementioned interview with President Obama. We did some Worldo talk. We talked to Ukraine. We talked to Ron. It's very much worth your time. Uh, and then today's episode, Ben, you know, we were just talking, Haley and I, before before you got on, it's like, there are these big, big issues that are sort of now weekly things that we cover. So we got Ukraine, the ongoing disaster that is Liz Truss in the Tory yeah. government is a weekly thing. Uh, we're learning about these generals and admirals making big money from Saudi Arabia, uh, the China Party Congress, Iran protests, talk K-pop, Venezuela, Haiti, uh, some comedy thanks to Bob Woodward and Jared Kushner. And then I talk with the New York Times Magazine's Robert Draper about his new book, Weapons of Mass Delusion. It's about the uh, the Republican Party going crazy, Ben. And we also talked a little bit about the Iraq War because he wrote one of the better books about how the war came to be. Yeah, great journalist, great writer, and uh, Liz Truss, content machine. <laughs> content machine. <laughs> <laughs> Trust but verify. Well, why don't we do you, Russia first and we'll get to Liz Truss. Um, so let's start with the war in Ukraine. I'll tick through some updates and we should talk about them. So... Putin continues to, to strike these civilian targets with missiles and these Iranian-made kamikaze drones. Uh, he's killing civilians left and right. And then President Zelensky said that in the past week or so, Russia has destroyed 30% of the country's power stations and other civilian energy infrastructure. So there's just blackouts across the country. Uh, and it's obviously incredibly worrisome for Ukraine, right as they're going into the winter. On the Russian side of the border, uh, Medusa News, great Russian news outlet, reported that 90,000 Russian troops are either dead, disabled, or have gone AWOL. Just a staggering casualty number. Putin's trying to fill that gap, as we've talked about uh, with his draft. He's throwing these new recruits uh, to the front lines with little or no training. Uh, on Friday, he said 16,000 new recruits are already in the fighting. Uh, I guess the draft has ended, or there's reports that it might have ended on Monday, at least in Moscow. But we'll see. 
Uh, a top UN official said Russia is using rape as a deliberate strategy and tool of war. And there's increasing fear that Belarus will directly engage and enter the war and potentially attack uh, Kiev from the north. Though a lot of political analysts, you know, Ben, we talked about this last week, think that that would be political suicide for President uh, Alexander Lukashenko. And then Biden announced another $725 million in aid for Ukraine on Friday. So let's just pause there, Ben. I mean, you and I have like kind of a rolling text conversation about like our level of anxiety about the war. I saw that Zelensky said after these recent bombings on all the energy infrastructure, Zelensky said, quote, there is no space left for negotiation with Putin's regime. I both get where he's coming from but also find quotes like that uh, incredibly unnerving because there is no off-ramp seemingly anywhere. Um, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, th- 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 there's a lot to unpack. I mean, there's one thing I wanted to say about Belarus, which kind of connects Please. to the neg- negotiation thing in a way. Uh, this is a thought I've been having recently because, you know, I-, I keep thinking back to 2014, 15, when we were really concerned that Putin might make move on Kiev. Like that was a genuine concern in the Obama White House. And, you know, he obviously didn't. And part of that could have been, I don't know, just the screw hadn't popped loose yet with Putin. Uh, part of that um, could have been that there was diplomacy. Um, there was this kind of Minsk process with Germany and France and Russia and Ukraine and, and the U.S. Uh, supporting it. But another thing I realized is that Lukashenko was uh, – lukewarm uh, Interesting. <laughs> on the Ukraine war back then. And that's before he got pushed onto the ropes, right? And, and you know, World Ozer will call, stole an election, there were huge protests, and he basically turned to Russia for support. And what Belarus offered Putin is this other way into Ukraine, right, from the north. Uh, and when they made their move on Kyiv, like one of the, the areas of advance was from Belarus. It's just an interesting thing that I had not verbalized, and I actually haven't heard people really discuss that one of the factors that may have changed between 2014-15 and today is that he can essentially use Belarus as his platform. Now, whether or not Belarus enters the war, I, I, yeah, like that seems like, I mean, it's one thing to motivate Russians to fight, uh, you know, Bel- Belarusian troops. Uh, I can't imagine. Uh, yeah. I can't imagine there'll be a lot of hands raised for the, for that task. Um, but on the on the broader point, I mean, I, I think the concern that needs to be verbalized and that we're going to probably hear more debate over the, the winter about is that like Putin is getting more and more nihilistic. There's this nuclear threat lurking in the backdrop. There's with this new general who was the Syrian, you know, Russian commander in Syria. We immediately see the impact of that guy's promotion, right? In all these attacks on civilian targets and power stations and, and yep. the like. And so on the one hand, you get where, you, you know, Zelensky is coming from, Um who wants to negotiate with people that are massacring uh, civilians and and you know stealing children from their parents? You know that's another thing that we saw recently. Uh, more reports of Russians doing that and telling kids that they're being adopted. I mean, if I were Ukrainian, I wouldn't want to negotiate with those guys. But I do think that they're you know, and, and Obama mentioned this in in your uh, interview on PSA. Mm-hmm. Um, there does need to be kind of lines of contact between the U.S. and and Macron has done this in the past from France. Uh, not not the kind of like you know Berlusconi, Putin friendly leaders in Europe, but but from the Ukrainian supporters, not negotiating over the Ukrainians' heads, but just having open lines to avoid unnecessary or inadvertent escalation, and to just kind of be constantly trying to feel out, you know, is there any negotiated settlement that that the Russians are seriously open to. You don't see a lot of positive signs. Uh, I I know all the arguments from the Ukrainian side. 
that the Russians might try to have a ceasefire and use that to regroup. Um, that is something to be wary of. But but you do need to, you know, in, in, unless this is like somehow a rapid collapse of the Russian military, which is somewhat possible, it does feel like there there needs to be some effort to keep flickers of diplomacy available for a negotiation at a certain yeah. point. You know? why, don't we, why don't we play a little bit of uh, President Obama's answer from my question uh, on Pod Save America. The question was basically, what do you say to somebody who like supports Ukraine, wants them to win, wants them to expel the Russians from their territory, but is really nervous about talk of nuclear war? Probably the thing that I'm, I'm most concerned about is that lines of communication between uh, the White House and the Kremlin are probably um, as weak as they have been in a very long time. We're now dealing with a um, a type of Russian regime that is actually even more centralized, even uh, more isolated and closed off. I think Putin uh, has consolidated decision-making to a degree that we haven't seen. Yeah, I mean, so Ben, you could tell how deliberate he is being. I mean, like yeah. we weren't sure the clip was over because he was thinking so much between words. But, you know, look, there's a very dumb conversation happening in some quarters of the Internet where it's like, stop the woke war or like yeah. Elon Musk trying to create, you know, foreign yeah. policy by Twitter poll. And there's not seemingly a lot of space for people who are like, hey, I support Ukraine. I think we need to stop like a fascist march by Vladimir Putin yeah. going across Europe. But also it's okay to be really nervous about this. It's okay to talk about what are the core US interests and where we draw red lines and not think that, you know, you know, more support is automatically the best idea. Obama later talks about sort of the offensive defensive weapon distinction and how he thinks that is important as well. I mean, that was also, uh, I thought, telling. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's choosing his words carefully there because I'm I'm sure he didn't, you know, intend to be criticizing the White House. And, and he makes the point very carefully that part of the reason why there's this lack of communication is because Putin is much more isolated and kind of regular diplomacy is harder with a, a regime that is kind of shrunk down to one guy. Um, but again, like if you consider where this could go, because um, I, I, you know, I totally agree with you that kind of Elon Musk you know, someone who became a Ukraine expert in the last few on weeks, you know, yeah. yeah, on Wikipedia, you know, sharing maps of Crimea and stuff Reportedly like. Reportedly talked to Putin I, directly, I, like who knows? Who knows, like the Ian Bremmer versus uh, Elon Musk debate on Twitter. But like I, I, like, I can see why that's frustrating people. And I'm not suggesting we have a peace negotiation via Twitter poll. Um, and I'm not suggesting, you know, maybe the negotiation is fruitless and it leads nowhere. And, and as people listen to this podcast, know like there's we really do kind of default to support for Ukraine. I think you do have to ask hard questions, though. You have to be questioning your assumptions and questioning where this is going and trying to define what is a discernible endgame that could be satisfying to the Ukrainians, um, but that, that that might potentially avoid this being a multi-year humanitarian catastrophe. Yeah, no, I, I look, you're totally right. They have to just keep testing this thing or else we're going to just... It's going to go really dark. Ben, lighter news here. Can we do lighter news yes, with our friends in, in the UK? So uh, a new update on our the trials and tribulations of the Conservative Party uh, and our friend Liz Truss, uh, Prime Minister Liz Truss. So a few weeks ago, Truss and the Tory party, they put forward uh, this massive tax cut for the rich, which is the worst idea you can have during high inflation. The reaction from financial markets 
so bad, the Bank of England had to step in. They stabilized the economy. Trust partially walked back her tax plan. Then last week, Trust fired her chancellor of the exchequer, uh, Quasi uh, Quartang. And then on Monday, the new chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, said he was reversing the entire tax cut that they had just put in place a month ago. So Trust's approval rating now, Ben, I think you... Were you the one who flagged this last poll that she's now at negative sixty one percent? Yeah, yeah, she's and she clocked in at ten percent today uh, or something. She like clocked in, so yeah. she's up from yesterday. Yeah. She's up ten yeah, percent yeah, from yeah, yesterday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was nine percent yesterday. Said so this rule. So, I like. I feel like we're you know when, how people talk about watching Michael Jordan or like Tiger Woods in their prime. Like what is what is the opposite of that? This is like the the political equivalent. I've never seen anything uh, quite like this. I think the. The sports equivalent is the the Mets, uh, oh, no. you know, oh, no. I, I blowing a ten and a half game lead to the break. No, the the Mets are better than Willow's Trust. I take that back. I love the Mets. I've never seen an, a, a, such a lame duck politician because this is someone who had no mandate, was not elected, um, ran for conservative party leadership on the basis of tax cuts and kind of this second coming of Margaret Thatcher. So the thing that she just you know swallowed and you know withdrawing this whole proposal from her chancellor, not even her own words, is basically the only rationale. That she really had to be prime minister, so she just has no mandate. I've just I've never seen a situation where a politician in a democracy has less legitimacy to be the leader. You almost get a sense that British people are trying to communicate through pollsters that that this just has to change, you know. And so now you see these reports today that conservatives would prefer Boris Johnson to come back. Obviously, oh, that's no. an insane idea. If I'm Labour, I'm just really going hard at there needs to be an election as soon as possible. This is not sustainable that this this goes on for what another year and a half crazy. like with this you know like it's just crazy you can't have the prime minister of a of an important country um with big problems who has no mandate no legitimacy nor do I think you can solve this by like kicking it to the next person down the conservative depth chart um yeah. I mean this is like the Carolina Panthers of uh of of, conserv- of political <laughs> parties right so I, if I'm Keir Starmer it's like election, election 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 this can happen if enough conservatives break and I would argue to conservatives like you guys need a wholesale you know reset too and, and just for the good of the country it's not sustainable the longer they hold on the more they're going to get creamed at the polls. So I would just really, really be trying to drive this to an election as soon as possible. Did you see the the Daily Star as a tabloid in the UK? They set up a live stream of a photo of Liz Truss next to a head of lettuce saying, uh, can Liz Truss outlast this lettuce? And it's just, yeah. the lettuce is just rotting. Uh, the second thing I wanted to flag for you, uh, Truss had another audience with King Charles. Let's hear how that went. Your Majesty, lovely to see you again. Thank you. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. He says, oh, you're back again. Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. Yeah, yeah, well, can you imagine what those audiences with Charles were like, too? Like, oh, uh, tell me about how your tax plan went. You know? Yeah, yeah, he's really in touch with the people. Yeah, I'm sure he gives great advice. Um, Ben, a couple quick updates on our close uh, allies in Saudi Arabia. Uh, First, the Washington Post ran a huge report today, or I guess it's really a series of reports, by Craig Whitlock and Nate Jones, two reporters over there, that talked about the nearly 500 former members of the U.S. military working for foreign governments, uh, and in many cases doing so in secret. That included 15 retired U.S. generals and admirals that had been working for the Saudi Defense Ministry since 2016, including President Obama's first national security advisor, General Jim Jones, uh, whose contract with the Saudis expanded after Jamal Khashoggi was executed in 2018. So tough call there, General Jones. Uh, The story noted, quote, Saudi Arabia buys more U.S. weapons than any other country in the world by far. 
in case you were wondering why the U.S. can't seem to quit them. A uh, couple other quick things. Last week, the Saudis promised $400 million in humanitarian aid to Ukraine in response to criticism of OPEC's decision to cut oil production. That helped Russia keep prices high, keep the money flowing. Separately, the Saudis uh, sentenced a 72-year-old U.S. citizen to 16 years in prison for tweets he sent while hanging out in the U.S. So this guy's not an activist. He's not like doing any, he's not like agitating in Jeddah. He's a regular guy with a Twitter account who like doesn't love when MBS butchers journalists, 16 years in jail. Finally, uh, Ken Klippenstein from The Intercept tweeted this, it looks like an Instagram video or something, a message from a Saudi prince and relative of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman responding to Democrats who criticized the OPEC production cut. Here's a clip. Anybody that challenges the existence of this country and this kingdom, all of us, we are projects of jihad and martyrdom. That's my message to anybody that thinks that he can threaten us. Message delivered. Loud and clear. Yeah, not a friend of the pod, I guess, Tommy. <laughs> no, he's probably uh, not going to. Note to self, don't go to Jeddah. Uh, wow, man. Also, like, don't you wish, you know, you had one of these these sweet deals with the defense ministry? Oh, man. I'm going to go through this quickly, I promise you. Uh, I mean, the first thing is equating uh, criticism of the OPEC cut in production as like some existential assault on them. You know, a little thin-skinned over there, guys. Yeah, really. Okay? They, by the way, people who've been, you know, freely criticizing particularly Democrats in the U.S. Uh, for, for plenty of years. Um, I think the second thing is like the right-sizing, the recalibration, all this stuff and the relationship that you hear talk of. We've been saying since the Trump years, stop all arms sales, suspend all arms sales, put that under some kind of review. Don't resume them unless there's like some conditionality around mm-hmm. them. Stop all support for the war in Yemen, period, full stop, right? There, there's, you know, stop support for assertive and aggressive Saudi foreign policy in the region that is inconsistent with U.S. interests and values. We know things that can be taken, steps that can be taken right away to show a consequence, not for the OPEC cut, that's part of it, but for the whole everything, you know? And, and, and some people will say, the problem is you're going to push Saudi Arabia towards Russia and China and the Saudis. I, I saw put out some statement. They want to join the, the BRICS. That's the, the Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa block. Look, the reason MBS is moving in the direction of the autocrats is not because of something the U.S. is doing. It's because of who he is. He right, is an autocrat. He's you know, and he's not like some guy who wanted to be on the democracy team, but then we hurt his feelings, and so he went over right. there. Like this is who the guy is. He's an autocrat. Exactly. He's in that club. He's going to be closer to China. That's going to happen. Let's deal with it instead of trying to pretend like a fist bump or whatever the thing is is going to bring this guy back in the fold. Why this stuff doesn't happen is because of that story in the Washington Post. The amount of money that they pour into the U.S. national security establishment and business community is meant to be their get-out-of-jail-free card, okay? And, and, and you know, you, why does this matter that a bunch of generals are getting rich doing this, in, including General Jones? Well, it's not just the impact it has of having those people aligned. It's, you know, the impact on current officials who are like, hmm, if I make nice with the Saudis and the Emiratis, I've got a big payday waiting for me when I get out of government. Right. Or some of those people might return to government in civilian positions. And it's not just generals. Like the story focused on generals. Like I can tell you that between consulting and speaking fees and all, all of this business, all of this money that they pay for, for people to, to 
lobby for their interest or to speak at their conferences or to advise them on stuff. Like that's not about just the advice they're getting. It's about sending a message that can we own you? We control you people. You know, that if you're an official who's going in and out of government, you know, you can get rich in between stints in government if you come work for us. And that's profoundly corrupting to U.S. foreign policy. It's a big problem, man. And the, in the total lack of disclosure, I mean, these journalists had to sue uh, the the various branches of service to get these records because none of it was out there. Meanwhile, you have like you know people getting prosecuted under the foreign under FARA under the Foreign Agent Registration Act, which of course should exist and, and makes total sense. But I just like this loophole makes no sense to me. It was a crazy story. Highly recommend everyone reads it because there's also different pieces for the UAE, for Qatar, for a bunch of other countries. So Ben, last week you talked uh, with former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd about the China Party Congress meetings happening right now. Really good primer for everything that's happening this week that I recommend folks check out uh, if you want to go deeper in it. Sort of a couple interesting stories I've noticed since it started. Um, On Monday, China announced they are indefinitely delaying the release of economic data from July through September. You got to assume that ain't good news. Uh, It means it was bad economic news and they're hiding it for for Xi's sake, President Xi's sake. Um, Those numbers are probably bad because, in part at least, because of China's COVID lockdowns or zero COVID policy. Uh, authorities reportedly blocked anyone who had traveled to an area with even one COVID infection from entering Beijing as the party Congress was happening. That's how over the top this all was. Yeah. And the Chinese authorities arrested 1.4 million people for various charges to kind of clean up the place and indiscriminately round people up. Uh, she gave a two hour speech on Sunday. We won't detail it all for you. Zero COVID isn't going anywhere. It seems uh, the party line was reaffirmed on Taiwan. Any like thoughts so far on the party Congress? Like it's again, not a place where you expect a lot of surprises, uh, but curious if you saw anything notable. I just think what we're seeing is how much weaker she is. I mean, he may be stronger in terms of his consolidation of power, but when this party conference happened, you know, last time, uh, five years ago, like he was in a pretty strong position. The economy was growing like China looked, you know, stronger relative to the U.S. with Trump. Uh, Now you've got the economy clearly in real trouble. <laughs> They're not even releasing data, right? Because of his policies. It's zero COVID. It's increasing state control over any semblance of a private sector uh, there in China. Um, and, and, and so all of these actions kind of project a lack of confidence. It's an aging population. You know, the, the bill come due for their one child policy. They have real structural problems that are getting worse because of the things that she is doing. Um, and that puts him, I think, in a real box. And, and so, yeah, you look at that speech. He, you know, he dialed it up on Taiwan a bit. You know, reiterated the use of force will never be taken off the table with respect to Taiwan. Um, you know, the concern is, you know, what's scarier, <laughs> like a a strong, ascendant, growing, confident China, um, or a China that has real internal problems and might look to lash out at Taiwan or something to to, to gin up the nationalism. Um, I think it's a pretty unsteady time. And that's the message. They're trying to project confidence here. But when you're rounding up that many people and you're covering up the economic data, it's impossible to project real confidence. Yeah, totally. And then this is sort of extending abroad. I mean, two stories that jumped out of us this morning that are just worth noting. Uh, in the UK, both of them actually. First, China's reportedly recruited former British military pilots to teach Chinese armed forces basically how to shoot down Western airplanes, warplanes, helicopters as well. Uh, roughly 30 pilots got paid uh, $240,000 for their services. They went over to China. They taught them, I guess, how you know British and NATO warplanes work. 
the British Defense Intelligence Agency had to put out some sort of warning on this. And then second, Ben, this was even more disturbing to me, was a pro-democracy uh, protester in support of Hong Kong was protesting outside uh, the Chinese consulate grounds in Manchester, England. He got dragged into the grounds and beaten up. He's got like the, the staff at the consulate came outside, tore up their posters, and then dragged this dude back inside the gates and beat him up. And a British cop had to go in and rescue him. Kind of reminded me of when uh, Erdogan's thugs beat up a bunch of protesters in Washington and Trump did nothing. Curious if your thoughts on either story. I mean, I, if, if, I wonder if the British government will have the guts to PNG these guys to kick them out of the country, the ones who, who beat up this protester. No, that's exactly right. I mean, I, that's what I'd be doing. I would kick these people out. I mean, you, you can't like you, you can't have diplomatic accreditation and just be <laughs> physically assaulting people and dragging them into your facility. Right. Um, so I think they should send a strong message and kick those people out. And I, I think China believes that because of its economic relationships, it has all this leverage. And that kind of plays into the other story. Right. Which is it's not in a weird way dissimilar from you know, a bunch of generals working for the Saudis, albeit the Chinese are more, you know, even more adversarial. This is like if like, you know, Maverick and Iceman went over to the Chinese Top Gun <laughs> and taught the fucking pilots how to shoot down F-16s and F-35s. Like, it this really is, this, is bad. Yeah. This is bad. And it, it's like the, the commonality with the Saudi thing is it's like, you guys are for sale. Like we in China, we in Saudi Arabia, we think all you guys really care about, you talk about democracy, but you, you know, what, what you really answer to is money. And and that's something more societal that has to be dealt with. Um, I do think, like, yes, they're not handing over maybe secret intelligence, but uh, th there's got to be some regulation about, hey, don't, don't train this country to, to defeat us in a war. You know, yeah, uh, it seems worse. I'd look, I'd look into that. Maybe it's something Liz Truss can do while she's uh, while she's uh, you know still got a few days. Yeah, right. In office. Or Boris Johnson with all his new free time. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. 
you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out. We've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash crookedworld. Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Uh, we're still watching these big protests in Iran. They're still growing. You know, they started on September 17th. It was after a 22-year-old woman named Masa Amini was murdered by the morality police. Then I was out in uh, Hannah's parents were in town over the weekend. We went to this sort of like outdoor art fair, basically, in Beverly Hills. And there were just Iranian-American uh, protesters driving around, kind of raising yeah. attention. It was actually kind of inspiring to see. There were reports that in Iran, school children are joining the protests and kids are still being arrested, beaten, killed. Uh, separately, there was a fire at Iran's Even Prison, which is the notorious hellhole that houses a lot of political prisoners. Jason Rezaian and Yegi Rezaian, who you heard from a couple weeks ago, were both held there. Uh, there are stories of torture and worse happening in, the, in that place. Um, there was this fire. It's not entirely clear what happened. There might have been a fight between prisoners and guards, but we, we're learning. Um, and then just in the vein of trying to lift up like courageous acts of protests, uh, an Iranian woman named Elnaz Rakabi uh, competed in a climbing competition in South Korea Sunday without a hijab on. It was seen, I think, by those who watched her as a protest or so, like solidarity with the protesters. A day later, she was reportedly tricked into entering the Iranian embassy in Seoul and then taken back to Iran. It was like a like a rendition, essentially. Um, to your point about weakness earlier of the Chinese government, it does show you how unbelievably sensitive the Iranian regime is to all of this. Yeah, I mean, there's just real cracks in the foundation of the Islamic Republic. You know, with all these school children, you know, younger people, like clearly want nothing to do with the dictates of this kind of aging, sclerotic, corrupt government. Um, I do think, like the. The, the, these week-to-week stories that we're covering because they're massive stories, right? Like there is a lot of kind of weakness in the world, you know? Like the, the Russians we've detailed, uh, obviously their vulnerabilities are on display every day as Ukraine takes territory. The Chinese, we just talked about, the Iranians, frankly, the U.S., right? And our democratic dysfunction. Yeah, uh, I think part, wobbly, yeah, I mean. part of what's so d- unsettling is like, where is all this going? You know, like, and how can we... Um, support the aspirations of the people protesting in Iran, the Ukrainians fighting against the Russians, um, you know, Taiwan's uh, existence, uh, American democracy. Um, I, I do think there has to be a kind of concerted effort to realize these aren't just like individual events that have to be managed totally in isolation. Like there needs to be a kind of story that, that you know, Joe Biden and, and Democratic leaders are telling about the kind of world that we want to see kind of emerge on the other end of this thing. Because as we've talked about, and as I, you know, I think Obama talked about Iran, like the, the, the scale of these protests doesn't mean that there's not going to be much rockier waters ahead, um, as you know, was the case for this climber, right? And, 
and, and where 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 is where are we trying to get to? Like, what is on the other side of this? And uh, in the interim, we're, you know, we have to reckon with the fact that we have to talk to countries like Russia and China, Iran. I don't think there's much to talk about with these protests, but um, but it, it just feels like a very uh, tenuous moment, Tommy. In the, we've been doing this podcast for uh, you know five years or so now. Like, I, I can't remember a time where so many pots were kind of boiling. You know. Yeah, man, I feel I totally agree. I mean, let let's add a couple, two more pots before we get some lighter stuff that are boiling. Um, first is uh, Venezuela. So more Venezuela policy news from the Biden team. Last week, President Biden invoked Title Forty Two, which listeners might remember from the Trump era. It was a uh, Title Forty Two came from a nineteen forties public health law designed to prevent the spread of diseases. The Trump team used it to expel all migrants attempting to cross the border, including those looking to apply for asylum. Uh, under the new Biden policy, Venezuelans who try to walk or swim across the border will be expelled. And those who illegally enter Mexico or Panama will be deemed ineligible to come to the U.S. But up to 24,000 Venezuelans will be admitted to the U.S. Uh, if they come via U.S. airports. This is all very confusing because the Biden administration tried to end the use of Title 42 back in April. That effort got blocked in the courts. Now Biden team is, I guess, embracing Title 42 to address this new influx of migrants from Venezuela. If all of this is confusing to you, I'm confused too. It is clearly a sign of how difficult border politics have become for the Democratic Party, though. Uh, end of sentence. I don't know. It's just very strange. Yeah, I, I, I mean, clearly they're feeling a lot of heat because of the border crossings. Um, and, you know, the Venezuelans have been a focal point of that. Keep in mind, it was Venezuelans that Ron DeSantis, like, uh, sent up to Martha's Vineyard. Yeah, a couple uh, weeks ago. I, I have one thought on this, Tommy, which is, and this gets to, like, trying to kind of turn down the burners on some of the pots, you know? Our sanctions, U.S. sanctions on Venezuela are contributing significantly to the desperation that Venezuelans feel. It's not the no only doubt. reason, like, don't no at doubt. me. I get it. Maduro's mismanaged and been there's human rights abuses. But the reality is there's something hypocritical about a policy where we turn up these sanctions in our own hemisphere so high that it's driving all these people to our border and then we close the border to those people. So my suggestion is, like, let's start unwinding those sanctions. And there were signs that they wanted to do that and they wanted Venezuelan oil back on the market. Like it, it, it's time to take a different approach here. This is not working with Venezuela, and 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 I'm not saying lift all sanctions. Obviously, you're going to keep like the creeps around Maduro uh, sanctioned, but like these broad-based sanctions that are just punishing these people. If you can relax those and then try to pursue some diplomatic effort, maybe given the fact that we have a new left-wing government in Colombia that can talk to the Venezuelans as well as other leftist leaders in, yeah. in the region who have no love for Venezuela, right? Boric has been very outspoken about this, but but could actually have a more constructive environment for diplomacy to resolve the political crisis, that's one burner that you can turn down instead of keeping the heat up and driving all these people to our border and then sending them back in some limbo. And look, it just in crass political terms, I would rather take the hit for appearing soft on Venezuela to like a couple hundred thousand hardliners in Florida than continuing to watch the situation at the southern border get worse and worse and worse and worse and have that become the only thing Republicans talk about in every single election. That is such a good point. <laughs> There's such an insanity when the, to the politics of our national scrutiny on some of these issues because the politics of Venezuela has been the Democratic Party 
is afraid to touch it and just embraces the hard line because they're afraid of those people in Florida. But in so doing, they're contributing to a much worse political dynamic that is being created by all the people that are being driven to our border, right? Uh, and they're coming from Cuba too now. And, and so to me, this just shows you why you shouldn't make decisions like that, you know? Yeah, yeah. and look, and the, the next sort of boiling crisis is happening in Haiti. Oh, it's been boiling for a long time. I mean, so what's happening right now the U.S. and Mexico have put forward two resolutions the United Nations designed to uh, help deal with gang violence in Haiti. One would enact an arms embargo and sanction gang leaders within Haiti. I have no idea how that works in practice, given that it's its own separate economy, but whatever, set that aside. The second would create, quote, a non-UN multinational force under the UN Charter's use of force provision. That's from a, a CBS story on this. I'm not entirely sure what it means. I think it means some sort of like Peacekeeping force, yeah. Peacekeeping yeah, force yeah, that goes down yeah. there to back up the cops. Yeah. Um, so, look, stepping back, like, Haiti's in a very dire situation. The president was assassinated in, like, I think June of 2021. Gangs control much of the country. Uh, they've been battered by natural disasters. There's another cholera outbreak that's growing. There are some Haitian officials who are calling for help and saying we need direct intervention. But there is a long, terrible history of international and U.S. interventions in Haiti just ending in disaster. And to that end, like there were some street protests against intervention last week. I think thousands of people were in the streets of Port-au-Prince. So, Ben, I mean, look, this just makes me really nervous. I know like, you know, uh, Ambassador Thomas Greenfield, Tony Blinken are out talking about these resolutions. I know the intentions are good, but I'm just wondering when a foreign intervention in Haiti has ever really ended well. I can't think of one. Well, yeah, I mean, the U.N. in the past, too, like was associated with one of the previous outbreaks of cholera. Um, it's just a mess. I, I I do have to say this idea of like a regional, you know, like you, you, you do want this kind of group of countries from the hemisphere that might be able to provide some support. I think considering a role for some multinational force is is worth exploring, given how chaotic the situation is, provided that it's accompanied by a significant amount of, of assistance. And, you know, that too not a great track record of development money, you know, going to the no, place. No. But I, it doesn't mean you shouldn't try. I, I Like this idea that we're going to sanction the gang members and they're going to give up. I do, How like, does that work? Right. I just feel like sanctions are becoming almost, I don't want to say comical, but there's, I don't know how many times I keep seeing, you know, like we designated these six people that that don't have their assets sitting in like banks in New York. It, 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 like it, I, like someone can show me proof that the, Haitian gang members would actually be uh, affected by these. That'd be a different story. But to me, you got to focus on what is a package of assistance and security support that can try to bring some stability on the ground here. And then some really concerted effort to work with Haitian civil society to figure out a political strategy here because it is not working. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, like, obviously doing nothing is not helping. I'm trying to imagine a scenario where you have like some, you know, international peacekeeping mission with like a American, a Canadian, and a Colombian cop shooting live rounds back at some Haitian gang, like killing people. Like I don't know. I just I makes me real nervous. But I don't know. We'll see. I, I'd yeah. love to know what the Haitian people actually want. Like that's all the hard. Well, that's part. the thing. That's where I ended on civil society. Yeah. Like that, that. That's the voice that we just. It's hard to to figure out. But there needs to be real diplomacy around that. I mean, I, there wouldn't be Americans, but in the past, you know, I think Brazil's been in the lead in the past on some peacekeeping there. Um, but that's something to design with the Haitians who are who want to approach this in in a in a an effective way, you know. Yeah. Uh, okay. A couple later things to close. So, uh, the South Korean military, Ben, uh, just got a whole lot more star power after members yeah. of 
the K-pop band BTS said they will serve out their mandatory military duties as required by South Korean law. Uh, whether or not these guys were going to serve or whether they should serve had been a, a big topic of debate in Korea. A lot of Koreans said they kind of wanted BTS to get an exemption because of how much the band means to the country and to their global reputation. I bet it's uh, a not insignificant uh, slice of GDP for one band yeah, for yeah, one country yeah. either. So uh, under South Korean law, it, uh, most able-bodied men must spend 18 to 21 months in the military. You can delay it up to turning 30, but not after that, which is what forced the issue. Uh, Jin, the oldest BTS member, turns 30 in December. So there are potentially no BTS concerts until 2025. Uh, ben, I don't know, kind of impressed by these guys making this decision. It did make me think about Ted Williams, one of the greatest baseball players of yeah. all time, who interrupted his baseball career to fight in World War II and then actually in the Korean War. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, have you ever done that thought exercise about what his stats would have ended up with? Like, you know, uh, I mean, like to your point, BTS coming off, uh, going to the sidelines for a couple of years is, I think, the equivalent of Ted Williams batting 406 in 1941, <laughs> yeah, yeah. winning the Triple Crown in 42, and then doing three years in the Navy and the Marine Corps as a fighter pilot. Um, yeah. And then did 39 combat missions over Korea. Well, let's not forget Elvis. You know, Elvis did a a tour in the U.S. military. Um, Look, I I think it's, um, I don't know, maybe Kim Jong-un will surrender uh, in the face of like BTS too. Like this could uh, break the logjam on the Korean Peninsula. But um, I I think it's setting an interesting example. Um, I'm curious what their service will look like (laughs) and, and like how normal, like, I mean, you know, I'm not questioning the BTS guys, but just like, can you imagine the you know, being in the unit with the BTS guys um, or in like some joint U.S. military exercise with BTS. Um, yeah, that'd be wild. But they, they seem like altogether admirable dudes and uh, in the, they're going to have a fucking monster tour in 2025. <laughs> yeah. Welcome on Pod Save the World to discuss their, their military service. They have a kind of world angle into K-pop here. Uh, absolutely. Uh, one other North Korea bit of news, Ben. Bob Woodward, uh, people probably know, is the sort of... Um, crusading journalist for the Washington Post, gets lots of big scoops. He released some audio of uh, one of his interviews with Trump. Let's give it a listen. Nobody else has them, but I want you to treat them with respect. I, haven't I understand, I understand. And don't say I gave them to you, okay? Okay. I... But I think it's okay. Normally, I wouldn't have given, I wasn't going to give them to Bob, you know. Would you make a photostat of them or something? No, I dictated them into a tape recorder. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's 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 Trump pretending to be slick and like he wasn't going to give Bob Woodward his uh, Kim Jong-un love letters uh, for his book. The, it, those letters are now, I think, part of the uh, part of the cash that was taken down to Mar-a-Lago. Although, honestly, the part of what he ever had there that I care about the absolute least. But kind of funny to hear him think he's slick being like, oh, Bob, I wasn't going to give you these, but now I will. You, you got me. But there's a tape recorder running. You know, like, like yeah. does he, I mean, like, is he not aware of, like, the recording device that is, like, capturing this moment for posterity? I, I just, like, the other thing about this, besides the obvious allusion to the, you know, classified documents thing, uh, is his, the depth of his pride in the, these letters and this relationship with Kim Jong-un, like, is something that is truly baffling to me. Because, like, also, you look at Mar-a-Lago, he had, like, the jumbo pictures, you know, the giant blow-up pictures of, from the White House of him shaking hands with Kim Jong-un like what what was so magical about this relationship like nothing changed right like North Korea didn't give up any part of its nuclear or missile program they expanded it like there was there's no peace agreement with the to end the Korean war like there's nothing came out of this relationship except these letters and 
they, like it's like the letters I got from some girl at camp in seventh grade that I like <laughs> kept because I thought it made me cooler or something, but it didn't. I didn't get anywhere with that girl. Like that, I, I don't. I don't really know what's going on here. I, I I think I told you how I've been reading this book, The Great Successor: The Rise and Fall of Kim Jong Un by uh, Anna Fifield, and it's getting to that. It's sort of bio of him, and it's getting to the that point when. You know, Trump was sort of threatening fire and fury. And I think a lot of people, including the Chinese, were like genuinely worried there was going to yeah, be yeah. a war between two madmen. And then Kim Jong-un kind of masterfully engineered this diplomacy with his sister. And she went to the Olympics uh, and it led to several meetings between uh, President Moon and Kim Jong-un and then the Trump meetings. And like you said, absolutely nothing, nothing got nothing, accomplished <laughs> nothing got accomplished I, I i just don't get it like dennis robin accomplished more i think you know yeah like, like uh what like what the fuck i it's just such a bizarre thing and he talks yeah. about these rallies like what does a trump supporter think happened like i i, I, I like this is the red pill thing i i generally want to know like what accomplishment do they think like this is associated with these letters are associated with yeah, like again, genuinely like in favor of talks, but nothing got accomplished. <laughs> in fact, yeah. you could argue that, you know, look, I think at the end of the day, the, the world is going to have to just come, come to terms with the fact that North Korea is a nuclear armed state and like maybe just stop with this policy track. I mean, I don't know. I'm talking well, about that, my no, ass that, right now, but like. That's a real question. That's the real question, right? Is like, is there some different approach that, it, that it just puts aside that objective of denuclearization? But to your point, like, in a world in which none of those summits happened and he never met Kim Jong-un, I actually think today is exactly the same. Like there's exactly li like the same. literally zero difference in North Korean society, nuclear program, missile program, foreign policy. It's just the only human being out of the 7 billion people on earth that was affected in any way by this diplomacy was Donald Trump. Was Trump. And, was and, all the, and all the media freak out that treated it like some genius thing when it first happened. Yeah, the Singapore yeah. summit coverage yeah, yeah, was unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, I guess though, reading these letters is better than Trump tweeting about how the Jews need to get their act together before it's too late uh, and then scheduling a dinner with Kanye West after Kanye delivered one of the most anti-Semitic rants yeah. on a radio show uh, I've ever heard. This could have been delivered on the Daily Stormer. It could have been, uh, you know, one of those uh, tiki torch holding protesters down in Charlottesville. It was like, it was textbook anti-Semitism. Jewish lawyers control the world, blaming them for everything, blaming them for his his wife talking about sleeping with her new boyfriend. It was shocking. And then Trump's reaction was to call the guy. Yeah, no, this guy, like Kanye Yee or whatever, you know, we like he he could read the protocols of the elders of Zion and like be on Tucker Carlson the next day and like be hanging out with Trump and then Trump yeah like I don't the, the, like standing up and being like Jews got to get their act together and the premise of what he was saying is that they should only vote and evaluate him based on Israel right not on any like Jewish Americans are are Americans who are Jewish like he continually makes these statements that assumes that their only interest should be in right-wing Israeli politics. It's the most anti-Semitic trope possible, right? And like, to me, I, like we've talked before, but we should say this again, like the weaponization of anti-Semitism charges against people, like there's such a more massive freak out over any criticism of Israel and calling those people anti-Semitic than there is of this. I was called anti an anti-Semite by Mike Pompeo, friend of the pod, <laughs> because I said literally that 
like, you know, if you look at the lengthy quote I said, but ethno-nationalism <laughs> is bad ultimately for the Jewish people. And Bibi Netanyahu's calculation that he's going to be this kind of corrupt, cruel guy because it's a tough world is the kind of mindset that has been, you know, <laughs> very damaging in the past. Now, like, there's such an irony that Trump, the the avatar of, of ethno-nationalism and now anti-Semitic tropes is kind of weirdly like this attached to the head political ally of Bibi Netanyahu who's trying to become prime minister of Israel. Bibi Netanyahu, by the way, who's apparently going to sign up with like a, a party in Israel that is so right wing uh, that they were at one point, I think, sanctioned and not allowed to come to the country because they supported terrorists. So right wing that Bob Menendez, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee chair, reportedly flew to Israel, met with Bibi and said, if you form a coalition with these guys, it will harm us. Menendez is not someone who's really ever critical of Netanyahu. But yeah, I mean, they're sort of, again, like the Republican Party in the U.S., inexorably moving to the right into a more and more extreme position. And it is just shocking to me that like Jared Kushner can run Kanye, for, <laughs> try to run him for president as a cynical attempt to like peel off black voters. Uh, and yet you don't hear anything when Kanye like unleashes this anti-Semitic screed. And, and, and a genuine conversation about anti-Semitism, which is absolutely necessary in this time of extremism and prejudice, has to acknowledge that the most virulent and potentially dangerous forms of anti-Semitism that we're seeing come from the far right, which, by the way, is not like some surprise. Like, that, like look at the Nazi party, like, like far right ethno-nationalism, right? And, and, and what's frustrating, too, is that like you look at an APAC, you know, that, that has devoted a lot of time to this kind of mentality that the focus is on critics of Israel. Like we have to understand that like people criticizing Israeli government policy are not the problem in this question of anti-Semitism. It's people who subscribe to far right ethno-nationalist ideologies. And yes, people who support like terrorist violence and violent delegitimization of the state of Israel. Uh, yes, yes, absolutely. There's anti-Semitism on that side, but this kind of uh, uh, like training our sights on any criticism of Israeli policy as as if it's the problem, it a lot, gives this huge free pass over here to, to Trump and Kanye West and, P, and Tucker Carlson, these people to to engage in like the the deepest dog whistles and cords of, of anti-Semitism in our history. Yeah, not even dog whistles. Um, yeah. One quick thing before we go to the, the minor news Draper. Uh, I was speaking to Jared Kushner, we just mentioned a minute ago. I was shocked to learn that Trump's political committee spent nearly $160,000 on books. We don't know what books. Right when Jared Kushner's book came out, uh, one of those political committees is now giving away signed copies of Jared's book if you donate $75. And then Jared got number one on the New York Times bestseller list with that little cross thingy which indicated bulk purchasing. It's just well, so, it's so Connect pathetic. those dots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, Scotland Yard, you know, could crack this case. I mean, or Angela Lansbury. I mean, this is not like, but like- It's a really expensive way to get on the New York Times bestseller yeah. list. How small do you have to be to like have your father-in-law like buy your way on the bestseller list? You know, uh, I should have like one of those email blasts, Tommy, that like, like the 9 million Democratic fundraising emails I get today that are like, you know, uh, Rachel Maddow says, like, buy After the Fall by Ben Rhodes to stick it to Jared Kushner or yeah, something. You there know? you go. Yeah. Um, it's a good idea. But man, what a, what a, like, just what a pathetic little twerp. You know? Such a twerp. Uh, okay, enough about that twerp. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, and when we come back, you'll hear 
my conversation with Robert Draper about his new book, Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind. Stick around for that. Sofas, recliners, love seats, everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute, who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay. Leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. My guest today is a contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine and the author of the new book, Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind. Robert Draper, it is great to see you. Great to see you, Tommy. Thanks for having me on. Uh, it's, it's so great to have you here because you're also the author uh, of one of the best books I've read about the Iraq War, which was is called, fittingly, uh, To Start a War. So I kind of excited to mix them both in. This is a fun interview for me because I get to do a little politics on the foreign policy show and a little foreign policy uh, in the politics conversation. So we're giving the people what they want here. Anyway, you get this long piece in the New York Times Magazine this week. It's about Marjorie Taylor Greene. She has gone from someone who I think was viewed, even in her own party, as kind of a fringe character, a bit of a pariah, to someone Kevin McCarthy now has to work with, some would even say, appease. There was this constant debate uh, during 2016 about Trump and whether he believed his own shtick, whether he would act on it, right? That was kind of the big thing. Um, curious what you think about that same question for MTG. Does she believe it? Like, what did you learn about her from spending all this time with her? Yeah, it's a great question, Tommy. And the answer, I think, is that um, uh, she believes enough of it. Uh, she knows as well that um, hyperbole sells, that the attention economy rewards people who uh, say outrageous things and do outrageous things. So she does all that. But the fundamental tenets 
that uh, Democrats aren't just wrong or even immoral, but that they're like evil, mm-hmm. uh, and that um, uh, and that President Trump is the greatest uh, president um, America's ever seen. Uh, that the stakes are existential. Uh, that children are particularly at risk. Stuff, by the way, that that is also fundamental to the QAnon conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. Um, she believes in its core, and uh, um, she'll amp all that stuff up, comparing Biden to Hitler, for example, saying that um, Democrats are communists. When I don't really think she believes that they're communists, she thinks that they're somehow worse than socialist, and maybe to her that is the definition of communist. So um, she believes enough of it, for sure. Mm-hmm. Man, it's uh, unnerving. I want, I want to get to QAnon in a minute, but there was a detail in the piece that jumped out at me, and I could tell by your writing that it, that it jumped out at you, which probably means we've both been in politics for too long, which was that MTG hired a guy named Ed Buckham to be her chief of staff. Uh, Ed Buckham was Tom DeLay's chief of staff for many years. He was like a huge DC power broker whose career ended in disgrace because he was getting money from a corrupt lobbyist named Jack Abramoff. What do you think I should take away from learning that Marjorie Taylor Greene hired this like DC fixture, like the insider's insider, and Milo Yiannopoulos, who I'll let you uh, attempt to describe uh, for the audience here? Sure, sure. Well, Milo Yiannopoulos is this um, right-wing provocateur who got in trouble after um, a statement he made in 2016 that appeared to be quite sympathetic towards pedophiles um, was excavated. And uh, he sort of fell into oblivion only to be resuscitated, career-wise at least, by Marjorie Green, who brought him on uh, supposedly as an intern, but in fact he was being paid um, by Green's campaign staff. Uh, it didn't work out, uh, not for any reasons relating to pedophilia, but um, but he was quietly let go. Meanwhile, Ed Buckham, as you mentioned, um, was the chief of staff uh, to uh, Tom DeLay, who, despite DeLay's notoriety, was as um, majority whip for the Republican-controlled House and then as um, the majority leader, really one of the most cunning and effective um, legislator, legislators uh, of the last 25 or so years. So that Green brought him on um, um, should be, you know, a, a clear indicator that she's not doing it for show because Ed's a very, you know, blase guy, 63 years old and, and uh, doesn't care about uh, getting any attention. Um, she, she wants to get legislation passed. She wants to form coalitions. Um, and uh, she hired him very specifically for that purpose. She told me that she wants to be a serious legislator. Now, we can discuss um, whether that's actually possible for someone like Green and actually possible for this um, Republican conference, but those are her intentions. And, you know, people should pay attention to that. Uh, Since, Tommy, I I should bring up that Mm -hmm. a lot of people have... um, criticized um, uh, my book and the excerpt that you that you mentioned that um, that appeared in it, uh, not for what's said in the piece, because I don't believe they read it, but just for the very notion of giving Marjorie Taylor Greene any attention at all. They just said she's a she's an attention seeker. Why don't you just, you know, ignore her and she'll go away? We've heard this song before, right, with Donald Trump. And, mm-hmm. and I really don't think for, for whatever criticism um, some uh, cable news organizations might deserve, for showing Trump over and over at his rallies, I don't think that's what swung the election. I think it's that Trump appealed to a base that the media and others didn't fully comprehend. And that's the case with Marjorie Greene as well. So that she um, is a person 
um, uh, beloved by the base, a person of influence because of being beloved, and now a person who intends to use that influence to get things done um, is, you know, a fairly sobering reality that I think merits um, discussion. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that sort of don't give people oxygen point is like a well-intentioned piece of truth that gets oversimplified. Like, I think that I think for a long time, uh, Democrats like myself, mostly on Twitter, were retweeting, you know, videos of people like MTG saying the most outrageous stuff, saying, look how outrageous this is. That is. I think that definitely helps her. I think the Long Magazine piece, examining her motives, doing deep reporting, figuring out what she means for the future of the Republican Party. I think that's that's something we all actually should be doing and reading. So. Yeah, right. Well, and also, you know, I, I began, I, I didn't really take her seriously at first either. When I, when I got the contract to do weapons of what the book that would become weapons of mass delusion, it was December, 2020. Trump had lost. He hadn't yet conceded. We all figured he would concede. Um, the notion that there'd be a riot at the Capitol was unthinkable. Mm -hmm. And Marjorie Taylor Greene, who had just been elected, was this, you know, wacky, soon to be marginalized um, QAnon person from Northwest Georgia. No one, no one had any reason to believe that she'd be taken seriously. A month into her tenure, she was stripped of her committee, committee assignments. And, and it really did seem to be then obvious that she would be consigned to the Star Wars bar of, um, you know, uh, Republican wackadoodles along with, you know, Louis Gohmert and people like that. And, and yet then in the first um, uh, fundraising quarter, she raised $3.2 million, which is a crazy amount. Yeah. And, um, and over time began really to grow in influence. And so, you know, that's, um, uh, I mean, while I, I remember um, going uh, to in May of 2021, going in, in Mesa, Arizona to see um, uh, Matt Gates and, and uh, Andy Biggs, the head of the Freedom Caucus, Paul Gosar, a right wing congressman and Marjorie Green all talk, do this rally. And um, again, she had only been in office for about four or five months and she owned that crowd completely. It was my first indicator that she had a national following. And then I'd start walking by her office in the hallways of her office. And finally inside all of her office walls were just festooned with all of these fan notes from, and they weren't from Georgia. They were all from all over the nation and they are all where we love you. You're a warrior, you're a fighter. And so this stuff that seems outrageous and we feel like, you know, shouldn't merit any attention at all is catching on regardless of whether you or I tweet about it and is commanding a following um, that, um, that again, you know, I, I think has, it's, it's hiding in plain sight. Yeah. I look, I listened to Bannon's podcast enough to know that she's sort of a, a fixture on there and there's an audience. Um, I asked this not to be obnoxious in any way. Is she Marjorie Green and not Taylor Green after the divorce? Uh, no, no. She's uh, um, uh, Green is her husband's name. Her okay. husband has filed for divorce. Got it. Okay. Um, she used to always call herself Marjorie Green. And um, at a certain point, I think someone gave her the idea that it was catchier to say Marjorie Taylor Green. But in her, um, yeah, yeah. But in, in the past, it was Marjorie Green. Got it. So in the piece, you describe how, you know, Kevin McCarthy has MTG sitting on these like high level policy meetings talking about the National Defense Authorization Act. There is a report in uh, Punchbowl News this morning that if Republicans take the majority, Kevin McCarthy said it'll be a lot more difficult to pass aid to Ukraine. Um, I don't know that we should be surprised by that. I, I think you see a lot of MAGA types criticizing U.S. support for Ukraine and the war. I'm curious how difficult or, or how hard you think that the MTG wing of the Republican Party will make passing war funding and like what 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 of their opposition is 
genuine, frankly, understandable concern about, you know, an escalating war with Russia versus just opposing anything Joe Biden does. And the fact that supporting Ukraine is kind of tied up in the first Trump impeachment. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, while while Green has talked to me about, you know, the notion of endless wars and how Iraq was a terrible idea. And I've heard the same thing um, from uh, talking to the senior staff of, of Paul Gosar of Arizona. It's hard to know, you know, if, if this is where they'd always been or if it was that um, uh, Bush supported it, therefore it must be bad. The rhinos supported it, um, <laughs> that uh, Ukraine is all entangled with um, not only uh, the fact that it, the aid comes from uh, the Biden administration's um, pushing for it, but also that um, that's Ukraine against Russia and that um, to talk about Ukraine is to go down the rabbit hole of the first impeachment and um, and, you know, though only a few Republicans express any kind of sympathy for Russia. The vehement opposition that some of them show for for Ukraine and aid for Ukraine is almost certainly tied with um, uh, bound up with this um, this whole convoluted thing with Trump, Russia, mm-hmm. and Ukraine. So, so there's that. And, and to your question of like, you know, is is this going to be uh, um, a heavy lift um, in a Republican majority? I think the answer is yes, and I think that it will be treated. And McCarthy is basically flicking at this. As um, uh, um, as a kind of leverage moment, much as the whole um, we will uh, uh, shut the government down unless you re- um, repeal Obamacare moment that took place in 2013, and I suspect that we will see this with a debt ceiling, but we'll see it with with anything else that the Biden administration considers necessary. That we can see it being tied to, for example, finish Trump's wall. Um, or you know, uh, or seal off the border in other ways. You know, no immigration, no immigration of any kind. So yeah, I, I do think um, a hostage situation is likely to occur regarding Ukraine. Wonderful. Although I do think we're a couple weeks away for Biden coming out uh, for the wall, given how difficult border politics have become for Democrats and how scared seemingly the party is. Um, for sure. Stepping back though, like your previous book, to start a war, it's this brilliant chronicling of the groupthink, the mistakes, the paranoia, the terrible staffing that led us into the Iraq war. It's a great book. I highly recommend it. Uh, you know, maybe pair it with Tom Ricks's fiasco to really get a flavor of the whole thing from this side of the, uh, of the ocean to the other side, to the Iraq side. But, you know, so I was thinking about that book. And then in your MTG piece, you talk about her believing some of the wildest uh, disturbing like threads of QAnon. And believe me, listener, there are different, it can get much weirder than just kind of core QAnon. I raise those two together because whenever I want to mock someone for believing wacky conspiracy theories, I think about the staggering, you know, errors, uh, mistakes, lies, some would say that got us into Iraq and how much that destroyed faith in facts and institutions. I'm curious if there's a connection there especially since MTG seems to act like she was forced by Democrats to believe in QAnon. It's a weird, you know, description by her. Yeah, sure. That's, I mean, there is a connection and, um, uh, it's the one thing guaranteed to make, um, Bush loyalists go ballistic is to talk about Bush and Trump in the same breath regarding um, uh, this kind of stuff. And, and, uh, and I, and I do think these guys are miles apart temperamentally, substantively and all that. However, um, uh, I, I think the phrase um, alternative facts um, began with promoting three entirely false ideas um, after 9-11. Number one, that Saddam was this 
evil supervillain um, who craved world domination. Mm-hmm. Number two, that Saddam, a secular dictator, was in cahoots with Islamic extremists like Osama bin Laden. And of course, most notoriously, number three, that Saddam possessed this awesome arsenal of weapons of mass destruction. All of those things were untrue, and they were alternative facts. And and uh, um, But I think that the, the real connective tissue, Tommy, that's especially salient regarding um, the Iraq debacle and Trump was that it gave Trump his best talking point. And, and mm-hmm. it wasn't just saying, boy, Iraq was a dumb war. It, it was saying, boy, look at all these supposed experts who gave us this dumb war. And it opened the door then for a reality TV show uh, host um, with zero political experience um, to be able to become president of the United States. Uh, it, it really signaled, in my view, Iraq did, um, the death of expertise. And, uh, mm-hmm. and so I think that that's, you can draw a straight line from um, the Iraq experience to, um, uh, to the Trump presidency. Speaking of Iraq, uh, one more question on Iraq. I don't know if you saw this, but I think last week, a reporter named Garrett Graff started tweeting anecdotes from this uh, Senator Pat Leahy's new memoir. Yeah, I did uh, see that. I don't know if it's out yet. The book's not out yet, but I guess during the Iraq war vote and that run-up period, that like terrifying, fraught, heightened period when, you know, testimony at the UN and, you know, uh, the Bush administration officials run the Sunday shows talking about the smoking gun being a mushroom cloud. Um, Leahy was out walking with his wife, a couple guys, he didn't say that their genders, actually, two people jogged near them and asked him what he thought of the intel briefings. Leahy's wife walked away, Senator Leahy's wife walked away. The joggers told him to read file eight. He went and read file eight. A couple days later, they approached him again. They told him to read file 12. He read file 12. (laughs) Then he voted no. I mean, this is like straight up Le Carre, spy novel stuff. Have you ever heard about this kind of like cloak and dagger internal intel agency effort to get lawmakers to focus on the right stuff? No, I did read that. I mean, my initial reaction, Tommy, when I read Garrett's um, uh, uh, Twitter thread was to want to fling myself out the window for not having known that, not having thought to interview (laughs) Pat Leahy. I was God damn it. Um, I did. I do remember in talking to Florida, then Florida Senator and head of the Senate Intelligence Committee, um, uh, Bob Graham. The Graham had um, gone um, to both Germany and to Poland in the summer of 2002, where they both basically showed them their intel, um, which indicated that Saddam had long since um, abdicated his weapons program. And uh, but no, it's I mean, and it's especially it has even more spy thriller con- um, uh, uh of a sheen to it, given that, I mean, you you mentioned that it was like, have you seen File 8? Have you seen File 12? And what Leahy apparently says is that they actually had code names. You know, have you seen, right. you, know, you know, Hawk 19? Have sure, you seen sure, Golden sure. Eagle? And, and, uh, and what, and yeah, so the punchline is that Leahy, who apparently was sitting on the fence about this, uh, came to the conclusion. And, and you know, what, I don't know if any of that is true, and I'm eager to read Leahy's book, or at least that portion of the book. But I do know that it bears the ring of truth because I talked to so many CIA analysts who put together the um, the really sad sack, um, ultra rushed um, national intelligence estimate yeah. um, that said, you know, we judge that, that Saddam has weapons of mass destruction when they held in their hands the evidence that strongly indicated that um, uh, that this was far from conclusive, way out of date and amped up by people who wanted to go to war. Yeah, I mean, Leahy voted no. Uh, you know, I don't want to blame him. He obviously did the right thing, but it did make me wonder why he didn't sort of 
march every single one of his colleagues into that uh, skiff and say, read this and that. Although okay. maybe, you know, there's a lot of um, uh, momentum in the other direction at that point. Last question for you. Since Trump came on the scene, I have felt like there is is this what feels like an inexorable march by the Republican base towards a more extreme place and increasingly feeling like we could end up in a place where the political system, like the parties are too far apart. We just sort of stop functioning. And I can't tell if that's recency bias in that if everybody always thinks that they're at the the central moment of history, right, we're all living in a historic moment in our own minds, or you know, and if there's a version of me that during the Tea Party probably had the same feeling or the Reagan revolution or Nixon, right, might have felt the same way. I imagine living in 1968. Or if um, this really is sort of a special fraught moment. Uh, and I was curious if your time with Marjorie Taylor Greene and sort of working on this book led you to uh, come to any conclusion on that. Yeah, it led me to the conclusion that this we are in a sui generis period. And though, you know, we're all prone to recency bias to to um, seeing, you know, the experiences that we live through as the most important of experiences. There's nothing on, you know, in the historical record um, of uh, a case where um, where truth was utterly up for grabs and uh, uh, and where. Um, you know, whole swaths of the American public, by which I mean tens of millions of people um, who are registered Republicans, believe that the election was stolen and believe other, you know, other adjacent lies. I uh, And uh, I, I honestly don't see, you know, look, part of why I'm not sure that there's any turning back from this is that Trump showed the Republican Party an easier way. I mean, it's it's hard to persuade people who don't like you to like mm-hmm. you. Trump's way was, no, we didn't have to do that. Let's persuade the people who like us to love us, to love us like crazy. And let's demonize the people who dislike us and maybe suppress the vote. And in any event, if they beat us, we'll say they didn't. We'll say they cheated. You know, yeah. and that, that's, a, that's an easier way to go. Yeah, well, that's a depressing conclusion, but we got to leave it there. <laughs> uh, the I also is, do children's parties, by the way. Yeah, the book is <laughs> Weapons of Mass Delusion When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind uh, by Robert Draper. You should also read To Start a War, a fantastic book on the Iraq War. Truly, really loved it. Uh, great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show and uh, hope to talk soon. All right. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks again to Robert Draper for joining the show. Thanks to Liz Truss for... You know, keeping things light. All the content, you know. I, I appreciate uh, it. The head of lettuce thing is really great. I think it's probably like seven or eight days in by now. Yeah, the I I, I saw like the another article titled "The Iceberg Lady," um, <laughs> <laughs> which is. Pretty, yeah. I mean, it's oh, just, that's brutal. I almost feel bad for her, but then she's not at all a sympathetic person. You know? No, not at all. And I, I really didn't think I could find someone funnier than Boris Johnson, so I appreciate the effort. What's going on in the Tory party? Like, where do they find these people? I don't know, man. I don't know. Let's get David um, Lammy in there, foreign secretary. Let's go, Lammy. Uh, all right. That's all we got. Talk to you guys next week. See ya. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. Saul Rubin is our associate producer. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth to upload our episodes and videos at youtube.com slash crooked media. Podcast. 
Ready for an amazing deal? BreezeLine's fiber-powered internet starting at $19.99 per month offers the reliability you deserve and security you can trust. Whether you're streaming, gaming, or working from home, we've got all your needs covered with speeds up to 1 gig and our two-year price lock guarantee. This deal gets even better with two free months of internet, free equipment, and free Wi-Fi your way to protect against cyber threats. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires July 8, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Ashley's Memorial Day mattress sale is going on now. Save big on select adjustable mattress sets up to $1,200 on Beautyrest Black, up to $800 on Purple, and up to $500 on Tempur-Pedic. Plus, get 72-month special financing with select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Visit your local Ashley store or ashley.com for better sleep and savings. Only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details.